we have an opportunity to join together in prayer. As I lead us in prayer, if something really resonates in your heart, I encourage you in the privacy of your own mind, just say, yes, Lord, and acknowledge it or agree with it, that we might be praying together. Let's bow our heads and let's talk to the Lord. Father, we've come together this week to acknowledge the passion that's been poured out for us. To acknowledge, dear God, what you have done through your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we're going to do that in a variety of ways this morning and Thursday night and Friday and again next Sunday. What we're really doing, dear God, is acknowledging something that you had planned before the creation of the world a resolution for our sinful nature, a way to bring us by grace into a relationship that was lost through the sin of Adam and Eve. I pray, dear Father, that as we share together, that we would appreciate what you have done. For you have created all that exists. And providentially, dear God, you have worked with your creation All these many years, you have committed yourself to us and have promised that you would be a part of our lives, all of our life. And then you made a promise to us that as Jesus was raised, we would also be raised, that we might spend eternity with you. Thank you, dear God, for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the beautiful world that you give us to live in. Thank you for all the opportunities that come our way. But thank you mostly for Jesus, our Savior. Father, when you look around the world, you must be very displeased with what you see. For having shown your grace through the rain each day and through the sun, through growing things from seeds and allowing us to harvest, to working in our lives and the lives of other people. Dear God, you have done so very much, and we acknowledge you so very little. Forgive us, O Lord, because there are a lot of folks who would like you to be excluded from any mention or any thought. Forgive us, dear God, that we have not been the voice you want us to be a loving and consistent reminder that you are God. Forgive us, I pray, through the shed blood of Jesus and wash away that sin and all sins from our life that we might spend eternity with you, a righteous God. Father, there are all kinds of struggles going on in our world and things happen so quickly and are communicated so rapidly that very often we forget about things. And Lord, there are a great many people this Sunday who are mourning the loss of those who died on an airplane, not knowing finally what has happened to them. And we pray for them and for all the others, dear God, who have loved ones. And their loss or their challenges have broken people's hearts. Dear God, we have a country that in many ways has excluded you. 
And I ask you, dear God, to work in our land to bring renewal. And I ask you, Father, to start at the highest office in this country and move all the way down to each and every one of us. We pray for that revival, dear God, and pray that we would be a part of that. Lord, there are a lot of people who wear uniforms this day. Some in the military, some in the police, some wear nurses and doctors' garbs, and others, dear God, who are serving and helping. We pray your blessing on them, that wherever they are and whatever they're engaged in this day and each day, that you would use those very events to bring them closer to you. We thank you, Father, that you're not handcuffed by attitude or even by law. We thank you that you are a sovereign God and that this is your world and we are your creation. Dear God, as we worship together each Sunday, there are always those who are struggling with health issues or financial issues or emotional issues. And I pray for them this day, asking, Lord, that they and all of us would put our faith in you and know that you are not only the author of life, but you're the sustainer. And to know, dear God, that while this life is precious, the eternal life that awaits us is even more precious. Help us to keep our perspective and help us to live by faith. Father, thank you for our church and the other Bible-believing churches in this country and in this world. Thank you for those who stand in your pulpits and who lead in worship, and I pray your protection for them. I thank you now, Lord, again, that you've assembled us here, and it's an opportunity for us to grow spiritually and come closer to you. Continue to bless us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you to take your Bible or the Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you and turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter. And we're going to start with the 28th verse. The Gospel of Luke, the 19th chapter, the 28th verse. And we're going to study through the 38th verse. Once you get your Bible open, if you would, keep it open in your lap. And as I move through the passage, just take your finger and kind of follow along and see why I'm saying the things I'm saying. And let the Word manifest itself in you. Let it do a work in you. Once you've found your place, it's our tradition for you to put your finger in your Bible and to look up and smile. So I'll know we're ready to move on. If you're not going to smile, please don't look up. (laughs) Let's ask the Lord to bless the reading and preaching of His Word. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, and I thank You for what it's done in generations past. And I thank You, dear God, for what it potentially can do this day as we're impacted by it. And as your Holy Spirit applies it to us and our life circumstances. So please, Lord, bless the preaching of your word. And help us to remember it when we leave this place. 
and help us to live by it, Father. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The last couple of Sundays I have preached two sermons that took Jesus from the Jordan River toward Jerusalem during the last week of his life on earth. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember I talked about a man who was a blind man. He'd been taken out on the road on the east side of the city of Jericho. And Jesus and his entourage were coming from the Jordan River, making their trek to Jericho and then ultimately to Jerusalem to complete the last week of his life on this earth. As Jesus approached Jericho, that blind man who was sitting down on the side of the road heard a change in the noise around him. And he realized something was going on. And he called out to someone, not being able to see him. And he said, what's happening? What's going on? And someone said to him, Jesus of Nazareth is about to pass by. And he listened. And as the crowd got parallel to him, he called out to Jesus and said, Jesus, son of David, heal me. And Jesus stopped. And because of the faith of the blind man, he healed that man. And Scripture says beautifully, the guy got up, and now he can walk on his own, and he joins that entourage and starts down that dusty road into the city of Jericho. Last Sunday, we focused on someone who was in Jericho. Jesus is still on his way through town, and there's a man who is not liked, considered a traitor by other Jews, the chief tax collector, the extortioner, the one who would take from fellow citizens all he could get. He wants to see Jesus. He runs down the road because he's small of statue and he can't see over the people lining the road. And he runs down the road and climbs up in a tree so he can look down and see Jesus. And as Jesus is walking by, all this chief tax collector had in mind at the moment was just to see him. And Jesus stops. And you remember what he said? He looked at him and he said, get down out of the tree. I'm going to stay at your house. And the change that took place in that chief tax collector is an absolute miracle. He experienced a change of heart. And he ultimately said to Jesus, If I've taken something that I should not have taken, if I've defrauded somebody, I'm going to give multifold back to them. And that's an outward indication of the changed heart of that man as he's come to know Jesus. Those are two good examples that kind of open up and show you the attitude of Jesus as he encountered people. When you start with our passage today, you're going to see how there's another example. Very subtle, but another example of the attitude of Jesus. I want you to look with me at the 19th verse, starting, or 19th chapter of Luke, starting with the 28th verse. And I want you to follow along and listen very carefully, because God is about to speak to us. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had approached Bethpage and Bethany 
near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he has told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. He was go- as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. May God add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. If you look at that 28th verse, you'll see a continuation of how this man Jesus and his heart attitude was revealed. It simply says, after he had said these things. And if you look back, you'll realize that as Jesus walked among people, whatever his agenda was, whatever it was that was motivating him to go from one place to another, that wasn't dictating his behavior. Instead, he would stop and talk to people. He would stop and preach and help people understand the things of God. So here Jesus is, having crossed the Jordan River, looking to the city of Jerusalem, knowing all that's going to happen. And he takes time to be with people and to share with them. A preacher asked Billy Graham's folks one time to allow the preacher's son, to go on the platform with him during a crusade. That almost never happened. Those seats are dear on those platforms. The next night, the coordinator came back and said to the preacher, you can bring your son. So a few nights later, he brings his elementary age son. And they're sitting up on the platform, Cliff Barrow standing at the front, leading in music, Billy's always the last one to come onto the platform. And as Billy starts up the steps and 70,000 people are singing all over the stadium at Rice Stadium in Houston, Billy stops and starts greeting the people who are on the platform. Then he gets to the preacher who's sitting on the aisle and he stops and he kneels down. And he says to the preacher, is this your boy, Steve? That's pretty miraculous, folks. With all that man had on his mind, for him in that circumstance to remember a little boy's name. And then, on one knee, touching the floor, he put his arm on the preacher's knees, and he looked straight into the eyes of that little boy and started talking to him and asking him questions. Cliff Barrow 
gets to the point where it's time for Billy to come up and welcome everybody. And Cliff, unbeknownst to people watching, does little hand signs behind him. So he does his little hand sign for Billy to get up and come. Billy doesn't get up and come because Billy's got his back turned to Cliff. So the preacher, knowing what's going on and understanding the hand signs, said, Excuse me, Billy, Cliff wants you. He said, He won't start without me. And I promise you, he didn't start without him. And he finished his conversation with that sixth grader. I don't know if the sixth grader will remember that the rest of his life. But I promise you, his daddy will. You know what that did? That revealed the heart of Billy Graham. It wasn't about big numbers. It wasn't even about what was right before him. It was about that moment. And he took time with that little boy. What are you doing with your time? How many little boys and older folks and others walk by you and you're so caught up with the agenda of life, feeling the emergency and the anxiety, and all of that makes you numb and void of being able to reach out? And I think what Jesus is showing us, with all that awaited him in Jerusalem, just literally a day away, he took time to minister to a blind man, to a chief tax collector, and to talk to anyone he had an opportunity to talk with. And folks, you and I have that same opportunity to share Jesus and to talk about scriptural principles with other people. There's something else in that 28th verse, and it's not something that just jumps out at you, but it says, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Most folks don't realize this, but if you get over there at the Jordan River, and you stand with your back to the Jordan River, and you're looking west toward Jerusalem, it's about a 3,800-foot elevation change in about three and a half miles. That would be like taking Stone Mountain and multiplying its height by five times and walking that kind of an incline. So when Scripture says he was going up to Jerusalem, he typically and really was going up to Jerusalem. What makes that even more significant is that it's hot, it's dusty, You don't want to be the last person in line because the dust will choke you to death. On that road, there are only a couple of places that you could stop then or today and get water. So here they're walking through Jericho, leaving Jericho, excuse me, and starting on toward Jerusalem. Dry-lipped, dusty. If they're perspiring, the dust is sticking to their face. Can you feel it? That's what they were experiencing. If you look on down at verses 29 through 31, you'll see the instructions that Jesus gave. What Jesus did is he said to his disciples, we're nearing Bethany and Bethpage, two very small villages to the east of Jerusalem. If you take that road this very day from Jericho to Jerusalem, you go through Bethany. 
as you go through Bethany, and just to have a picture in your mind, Bethany is on one side of a huge mound. If you walk around that mound, the Garden of Gethsemane that we read about in Scripture is on the western side. Bethany's on the eastern side. As you walk around the Mount of Olivet and you have the garden behind you, you look down through a valley and on the next mound is the city of Jerusalem. It's an awesome view. What Jesus says in the way of instructions, he says to two of his disciples, I want two of you to go into Bethpage. We don't know where Bethpage is. It was such a small village, and today it no longer exists, and archaeologists have no idea where it was. We know a lot about Bethany. We know that Mary and Martha lived there. We know that Lazarus, their brother, lived there. We know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, an absolute miracle, in that village. But Bethpage, that's not true. We don't know much about it. And what he said to him was, I want you to go, the two of you, into Bethpage. And when you get into the village, and you can sense from Scripture, as you first enter this village, there's going to be a colt who's never been ridden on, who's going to be tied up right there. And I want you to take that colt, and I want you to bring it back to me. And if anybody says to you, what are you doing with my colt? Why are you untying it? I want you to say, the Lord has need of it. Now, you know, you can hear those words and read that in Scripture, and you can move on from that. There are a couple of key things in there. One is, why an unridden colt? Because it's the sign of royalty. A colt that no one else has ever mounted. It's an indication something very significant and someone very significant is about to be in your presence. Put yourself in the place of the two disciples. Jesus has just said to you, I want you to leave the security of this crowd of people on the road to Jericho, from Jericho to Jerusalem, and I want you to go to this little remote village. And I want you to walk in and take a colt that belongs to somebody else. And I want you to untie it, and I want you to bring it to me. Would you do that? In real life, would you do that? If you were asked to go and get somebody else's colt, what would you do with that in your mind? I suggest something to you. There are a lot of times in life when God asks us to do things. And if we always stop and try to reason it out and figure it out and answer all the potential questions, oftentimes we'll never get around to doing what he's asked us to do. Hebrews 11. If you want to read about faith, it's the chapter in the Bible that really stands out and talks about faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Now, you and I in the Western world have been taught a discipline. We have been taught to think and reason logically. 
we have been taught to try to answer all the potential questions. And most of us have been taught not to do anything until we resolve those things. And a lot of times God says to us, here's what I want you to do. And we stand dead still and we don't do it. But if you live by faith, you integrate your reason and your faith and you bring them together and you have the freedom to respond. Because the things that you hope for are going to happen. The things you're really convicted of, if they're of God, they are going to occur. In Hebrews 11.6, there's this, a verse, and the first phrase of it simply says, And without faith it is impossible to please Him. If you pride yourself on figuring it all out, and not doing anything until you've got it figured out, know that that doesn't please God. God wants us to live by faith. We believe by faith. He wants us to have an operational faith that we live by every day of our life. Verses 32 through 34 talk about the results. The young colt is just inside the little village. And the two disciples walk in and they see the colt and they take the colt, untying it, and start to leave. How did Jesus know that colt was there? Remember back in Philippians, we're told that what Jesus did is he became God, became a man, and set aside his divinity and he lived like we live. He faced all the challenges that we face. He was involved in life just like we are. If that's true, how did he know the cult would be there? I have a theory. Can I share it? That last week, there was no room for any variation. Your salvation and mine, and the salvation of every other person who's ever been called by God was wrapped up in the events of that week. Jesus had come to die that we might live. And nothing was going to stop that from happening. And this was the appointed week when God was going to work that out for a sinful world. Jesus is starting to adorn himself with divinity to help himself get through as a person that last week of rejection, of being hurt physically and emotionally, of being beaten, humiliated, all the things that you and I don't ever want to have happen to us. So many of those happened to him. And then to be taken out of the city of Jerusalem and like a common criminal, to be nailed to a cross and to hang there with a thief on each side of him and people gawking at him. All that awaited him. And I think what he did is he took control of that situation. He knew that the colt would be there. Providentially, God had provided the colt. Providentially, God worked in the life of the owner of that colt 
for some natural reason to have the colt there and have it tied up. And when the two disciples untied it, the owner said, What are you doing with my colt? And they said, simply, The Lord has need of it. And walked out. And you sense with the permission and blessing of the owner. How's that possible? You know how that's possible? God works providentially in history. God works providentially in our lives. God moves people around and influences them and influences natural occurrences to get them to harmonize with what he's seeking to accomplish. And he cannot and will not be thwarted, for he is God. So what we're seeing is a little glimpse of a sovereign and awesome God working things out just like he does in your life and mine. And so often in the Western Hemisphere, we miss it. And we don't understand that he's been at work. Now, I say all of that because I would like, and I hope you would like, to raise our sensitivity to the moving of God. And the way to be sensitive to that is for you in your prayer times to say, Dear God, let the Holy Spirit that dwells in me as a believer sensitize me to what you're doing around me and what you're doing in my life and in the lives of others. Have you had God work in your life? Have you? Amen. I want to introduce you to my wife, which was a gift from God. And providentially, he brought her into my life. He's done that in a multitude of ways in your lives and in my life. He does it every day. And what a wonderful thing it is when you acknowledge it and give thanks to him. If you look on down at the 35th through 38th verses, you see the triumphal entry. When you talk about Palm Sunday, we talk about bringing palms and laying them down before Jesus. It's a little more complex than that. When they got back with the colt, they were going to put Jesus on the back of the colt, and to ease the ride, they put their own outer garments over the back of the colt. And then they lifted Jesus and put him on the colt. And then Scripture says, as they started toward Jerusalem, which was right there before them, they were at the Mount of Olivet, and they go down through the Kidron Valley and right into the Eastern Gate. As they're about to make that short trek into the city, some of the disciples take their outer garment and throw it on the road in front of Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful way to honor him? To take your own garment that you try to keep clean and don't want it torn, and you put it at the feet of an animal and allowed to be tromped on as your way of saying, I acknowledge this man, Jesus. The Gospel of John helps us with this picture because it says to us that there were some pilgrims who were going into Jerusalem for their high holy week, And those pilgrims had come the same road, and those pilgrims knew that Lazarus had been raised from the dead. 
And they were all excited about this man who was an itinerant preacher who could apparently raise someone from the dead. And when they heard that he was on the outskirts of Jerusalem, they and others in the city ran out to be there. And they didn't take their cloaks off, but instead they cut palm branches and threw them on the road. And that's where that tradition comes from. And they began to sing out and to welcome Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Why were they so excited? Why did they stop what they were doing in the city of Jerusalem, which was their ultimate destination? Why would they then run out of the city and line the road and put palm fronds on the road? You know what Scripture says? It says because they knew he worked miracles. And the Jews wanted so dearly to see their country reestablished as an independent nation, not under the rule of Rome. They wanted so dearly to have prosperity return to their land. They could remember days, particularly during Solomon's period, and they'd been told about days when the city was wealthy and people did well and prospered. And they looked at this preacher who could raise somebody from the dead and work other miracles, could heal a blind man, could change the heart of another. And they saw him as a solution for their personal needs. There are a lot of people in our country today, a lot of Christians, who would like to see revival in our land so we could see the prosperity come back to America. I would suggest to you there's something much more important. You know what's more important? The redemption of people. People coming to know the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Because eternal life awaits every human being. And to be in the presence of God Someone must die for our sin and wash it away because you and I cannot atone adequately for our own sin. What's more important than restoring this land that we love? Seeing people come to know Jesus so they have an eternal place in His presence. We get our priorities really messed up because of some of our own desires. I have a little side thought to that. If we're effective and people in majority come to know Jesus as their Savior, this country will change. And then there will be some reason why God might bless this land. Right now, I'm not so sure that there's a reason why he should do that. One of our elders sent me an email this week and said he'd met a lady and they were talking. He'd never met her before, apparently. And she said, you know, what we need to do is we need to teach our children about the love of God. The elder added, comma, and our grandchildren, which tells you something about his station of life. And then the lady went on to say, Because the world we live in will never teach them about the love of God. 
That's a reality. That's the world we live in. So what Jesus is doing is Jesus is providing a solution to our eternal problem. Securing a place in heaven for you, for your loved ones, and for me. What a beautiful thing he has done. So what do you do? What do you do with this sermon? What do you do at lunch today? You have an opportunity to witness somebody who's sitting next to you or sitting at a table close by or someone who's serving you. You have an opportunity to be nice to somebody and just say to them, God bless you. And raise their awareness to the presence of God. Folks, you and I are the ones who make the difference. He's made the difference for us. Now we can help make the difference for somebody else as he chooses to work through us. Understand? What a week in the history of the world when the Savior has come to die and allows that to happen so you might live. Praise God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that through the passage today and I pray, dear God, through the events of this week in our church and other Bible-believing churches, that we will grow closer to the understanding of what really has transpired and how much you must love us to give your only begotten Son, which I am sure none of us would have done. What a God. What a love. Thank you, dear God, for loving us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. I love the way this passage ends. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. God bless you and God keep you. And may his face shine on you. And may you feel and be aware of his presence in your life day by day. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.